So today we wrap up our five-month preaching series in Proverbs. It wasn't as long as Romans when we went through that, if you remember. Definitely was not as long as when we went through the Gospel of John, savoring 21 chapters together. Our main goal, like the main goal of Proverbs itself, was for you to grow in your love of the fear of the Lord. Now, as a Christian, God does not want you to walk out of this place today and be afraid of what he says and afraid of what he is going to do. We may do this with our earthly fathers, but it was never intended necessarily for us to be afraid in that sense of our God as our adopted father. That's religion, and that's not Christianity. This is not what the fear of the Lord means. At the cross, Jesus took on his shoulders all that was intended for you. All that your sufferings, all that your adversities, all of your sicknesses, all of your sorrows, and then death itself, what it would do to you, it was finally and truly done to Christ Jesus instead. Therefore, the fear of our Lord is our hope. God's constant presence in our life is the foundation for how we live a meaningful and satisfying and then eternal life. God's word and promises can be applied to any and every situation. Now, we have seen what the fear of the Lord looks like. And here it is. It's asking God something like this. God, you are present in this situation. Whatever it is that you're facing right now, fill in the blank. You are present in this situation. So what do you say that can be applied to it? What do you say that my situation can fall under? Those who fear God do this, and the fool does not. You've also seen over these last five months that life is far more complex than what Western culture teaches you. We are far more beautiful, and we are far more broken than what American culture tells you and what you believe every single day. And this is where the gospel and our Lord Jesus shines brightest. It's kind of like how Dr. Keller says. He says something like this. He says, the gospel is that you are far more sinful than you could ever dare imagine. And you're like, ouch, Dr. Keller. But he's not done. Then he says, and you are far more loved and far more accepted than you could ever dare hope. At the same time, that's the gospel. That's Christianity. And that's been our study throughout Proverbs, right? We are fools, we are sinners, we reject God's word on everything, whether it's sex or money, the heart, words, friendships, relationships, marriage, family, work, fill in the blank. We are fools and sinners who reject what God says, and we want to do what we want to do instead. Yet at the same time, you and I are loved, so loved, that Jesus took on our curse for rejecting his father. So today we're going to wrap up our Proverbs series, and we are going back to the beginning, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let's take a look at our proposition for today. We're going to see one final time, and we're going to connect to Jesus, this about fear of the Lord, that Jesus secured the experience of fearing God as our superior fountain by taking on our death. 
I firmly believe there is at least one person that's gathered even in a church this size that does not embrace this proposition as truth. You do not see God as the truest fountain that your soul needs. You're still fighting through this. You're still being a little foolish. And I pray that one last time that God will use the preaching of his word to put you in a different position. Today we're going to see that Jesus is the wisdom of God. All the wisdom of Proverbs points to Jesus, who is the greater Solomon, the greater son of David, the true son of David. Jesus is the key to fearing God. This side of the cross, you cannot see God the way that you should without him, and you should thank God for that. Fear of the Lord hinges on Jesus, who lived perfectly in fear of the Lord. Today, we're going to see why fearing God is better than the alternative that you're currently using to live your life. So I'm telling you right now, the method by which you're living your life right now, it doesn't satisfy if you don't fear God. If that's not the number one consideration, you're going to lose at the end. So today, we're going to see why fearing God is better than the alternative that you are currently living your life with. That's one. Two, we're going to see that fearing God is the superior and the sweetest fountain that your soul really is looking for. It is not sex. It is not money. It isn't the pay raise. It isn't distinguishment at work. It isn't achievement. It isn't family. None of those things can truly and lastingly satisfy. Only fearing God as the superior and sweet fountain for your soul can. That's what we learn from the woman at the well in John chapter 4, right? And then we're going to contrast one more time those who fear God with the fool, because that's what Solomon does. He's constantly contrasting. And then we're going to shift to see how fearing God is the sweetest approach to life. And then we're going to finish with Jesus, who secured this experience of fearing God as the sweetest fountain for our souls, because he took on your death. He became what your sin and suffering and what your death would do to you. He experienced it instead. That's where we're going today as we wrap up Proverbs. You ready? Let's do it. Let's get to our first point. In our first point, the call is for you to see that the fear of the Lord is your sweetest fountain. It satisfies better than sex and marriage and family and work and money and achievements. It does. Oh, one last time, let us see what fearing God looks like. Fearing God is enjoying the presence of God in your life. It's not an obstacle to what you really need in life. That's what many people think. If I'm a Christian, if I take God's word seriously, if I truly live as a Christian, I can't do what I want. Fearing God is not an obstacle. It's not a hindrance to what you want. It is the key and the pathway to what your soul really needs. Amen? Amen. Good, good. So let's look at this set of Proverbs that's been curated for you so that we can conclude that fearing God is the sweetest approach that you can take to life. And I pray that whatever approach right now that you're applying to romance and marriage and family and money and fill in the blank, that you just leave it at the cross today. That's my prayer for you. Let's look at our first proverb, Proverbs 23, 17. Solomon says, do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in fear of the Lord always. The question we have to ask this proverb is something like this. What happens to your heart? What happens to the heart of a person 
who always lives in fear of the Lord. What happens in the heart of those who know and love the fact that God is always present with them? Do you see the answer in this text? Your heart is changed. You and I naturally struggle with envy. In fact, American culture, to some extent, is built on capitalizing your struggle with envy, with keeping up with the Joneses, seeing what other people are doing, so you can do what they do. Answer this question just in your own mind for a moment. Why is there so much content advertising on social media? And why, over the past five years, has that content advertising shifted to normal everyday people trying products, eating things, going places, and no longer the elites of the elites? What have the elites done to you? They're tricking you by putting something in front of your eyes. Why there's so many normal, everyday people that you watch on your phone to see what they're buying, what they're eating, where they're going. We wonder that. Because American culture has discovered, and they're taking advantage of you, that they can get you to do things. They can get you to buy things by simply watching other people buy and do things. And you fall for it. It's okay. So do I. But fear of the Lord changes and grows our hearts. The heart is far more complex than what you and I currently understand it to be. We have gone through Proverbs for five months. And after five months of looking at the heart to some extent, it is still more complex. Not even tip of the iceberg. To say today, Pastor, I don't struggle with envy I don't even go on social media. It doesn't do justice to the beauty and the complexity of your heart. You are not being honest with yourself. Remember, to the ancients, to those in the East, the heart is who you truly are. In the West, we understand the heart to be just your emotions, your feelings. But the heart is the totality of your person, who you really are. More than your body, the way American culture says you are your body, that's the, that's the mantra today. The East says, no, no, you're not your body. Actually, you need to free yourself from your body. That's Hinduism, Buddhism. The body's the problem. But you are more than your body. And we can agree to a certain extent with those ancients in the East. Because the heart is far more than the seat of your emotions. Fearing God grows your heart, not just your emotions and feelings, but the totality of who you are. So Solomon reminds us that the fool envies sinners. And for a moment, we have to be reminded of the Bible's point of view about sin and evil. You are meant to think of what we've been talking about for several weeks now, spiritual scoliosis. You were born to have a straight spine, but you have a condition that bends it, right? And the spiritual scoliosis bends your spine towards yourself and away from God. By the Bible saying that humanity is evil and sinful, it's not saying you're the most depraved that you'll ever be. You're the most heinous person that you'll ever be. That's not what the Bible means by us being evil and sinful. What it means is that naturally, on your own, 
you are always going to be bent towards yourself than others. Naturally bent towards yourself than towards God. That's what the Bible means by sin and evil. The fool envies sinners. And the thing that we have to be reminded of is that the fool thinks for some reason that something is going on in the life of the other person that they have chosen selectively to post on social media, for example, that's better than what is going on currently in your life. Social media is built on this, and we fall for it. Some of you say, no, I don't, because I don't even have a social media. Vernon's not here. He's somewhere, I don't know, in a tree stand. But if he was here, he'd be like, not me, ha-ha. <laughs> but we have to ask this, Heritage. What could be better than the presence of God in your life? What can be better than the promises of God in your life? Another zero in the bank account? Is that really going to be it? A new car? Uh, another step up the pay scale? If your significant other was just X, Y, or Z, is that really going to do it? If you just had one more kid, would that, is that going to do it? No. You are being envious of someone who's just as human as you are who's just as broken as you are. That's why we're foolish. Do you see that? It's foolish to believe that someone who is just as broken as you are is in a better situation than you are. That's where the tomfoolery comes from. Fear of the Lord fights envy. Fear of the Lord helps you realize and then rejoice that the presence and the promises of God for your life secured by Jesus, it's better it's better than anything else that you think is going on in that other person's life who uploaded a video or a picture. Proverbs 28, 14. The wisdom writer says, How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Look at what happens again to the one who fears God. One thing you should see is that Solomon calls this person blessed. And we have to ask why. Why is the person who fears God happy, content, satisfied with where they are at in life? It's because fearing God grows the heart, not just your emotions, but your true self, who you really are underneath it all. Those who fear God are happy, content, satisfied because their hearts are not hard. Do you see that? We don't envy people. We are growing more and more to be content with God's presence and God's promises in our lives. And this frees us. Many people have this idea in America that Christianity is restricting. Christianity ties you down. But in fact, you thinking that every 30 seconds you have to go onto your phone, that's slavery. That's being bound to another. Christianity. And the wisdom of the Bible frees us, I think importantly right now for this conversation, is to see people the way that you should see them. Not as better off than you, and not as worse off than you, but equally broken as an image bearer of God as you are. Beautiful, yet broken, just like you and just like me. This frees us from having hard hearts, because a hard heart, will destroy relationships. It may take a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade, but
but hard-heartedness will destroy relationships. A hard heart will also break you when calamity comes. Adversity and pain is far more complex than what the West and what America tells you. In fact, American culture has done you a disservice. There is at least one way by you and I being Americans that we are not as better off as people in the East. Because people in the East have a far more complex and satisfying response to adversity than we do in America. They do. America tells you that pain must be avoided at all costs, right? There's a reason why there's a pain reliever called a leave. When you have pain, you must take something to alleviate it, right? America tells you that if you are in pain, you are doing something wrong, right? And then America tells you that if you are in pain, suck it up, buttercup, and just get through it. All of those are wrong responses in and of itself to the complexity of pain and adversity and suffering that you experience. Only Christianity provides a truly satisfying and meaningful point of view that will truly aid you in a lasting and meaningful way when calamity comes, when adversity strikes. And here's why Christianity is so different than any other religion or idea or philosophy on the planet. We believe that Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, took on flesh to take on our suffering and our sins. And that changes everything in our approach to suffering. If Jesus truly took on your suffering and my suffering, our hurts and our griefs over our loved ones, just that for example, then that means there's significance and meaning in every single pain and every single suffering. And there's no point of view on this planet that believes that except for Christianity. It's exclusive and it's unique. Those who fear God are blessed, happy, content, satisfied because God is growing a new heart, a soft heart in that person. This is what Jesus died to create in you. So the new covenant that Jesus initiated, inaugurated at the Last Supper, and secured, initiated at the cross, is a covenant where God removes that naturally hard heart towards him and replaces it with a new heart, a soft heart. And that heart is provided to you, which we'll take a look at on Wednesdays this fall, by the very presence of what we call the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Let's take a look at our next proverb. Solomon says here that better is a little with fear of the Lord, than great treasure and turmoil with it. And I know some of you are still saying, yeah, right. I would still like to experience this, the great treasure with my turmoil, and see how it goes. But this sets off a battle between what you believe and what God believes. Because God is being very, very clear with you right now. The truth is, it's better to have little with fear of the Lord than the treasure with the turmoil that associates with it. The one who fears God is growing to set God as their treasure. Because the wise fear God, they don't tie down their worth to the amount of earthly treasure that they may have at any given moment. In fact, they believe that little treasure with fearing God is infinitely better than great treasure without fearing God. And we got to say, what? Why is this? 
And here's what Solomon says. It's because treasure has a companion. Those of us who've had the momentary experience of having wealth knows that wealth has a companion. Treasure has a friend, and his name is Turmoil. God changes our hearts, grows our hearts about earthly wealth when we fear him. When the presence and the promises of God are worth more to our lives than how much is in our bank account right now. Or how much cash is stuffed in that little secret crevice of the wallet. Husbands, you know you all have one, right? So here I have to ask you. Do you view the presence and the promises of God as greater than earthly wealth? The answer determines who you fear most, God or mammon, right? Now let's get to Proverbs 16, 16. Solomon says this. It's, it's by loving kindness, and it's by truth that iniquity is atoned for. By fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. Living in the fear of the Lord is the superior way to approach life because of these next two verses. What I want you to consider this morning is this. Whatever your number one approach is to life right now, whatever scheme or idea that you're living life by right now, it's not better than this. You compare that thing with what the Bible claims about God right now, and it's going to fall short. It cannot do for you what Solomon's about to say God does for you. It doesn't. Fearing God keeps you away from evil. Remember the old song, more money, more problems, right? I'm thankful as a kid that it was redone in hip-hop. I love that song as a kid, but it reminded me, more money, more problems. Fearing God is the process by which God heals our spiritual scoliosis. And we ask, how can this be? Solomon, God, how can this be? Proverbs has taught us that we are all sinners. We are all fools. We are all hard-hearted. We all have spiritual scoliosis. We are all on the same level. There isn't high class, middle class, low class. Fill in the blank colors. There's one pot, and we're all in it. So how can our spiritual scoliosis be straightened out? How can our hard hearts be removed? And how is it that we can be given new hearts? It's a struggle, right? Even religious teachers struggle with this. This was Nicodemus' question to Jesus at the midnight meeting, right? Solomon says this. Someone has to atone for you. Someone has to. That, that's how you keep away from evil. That's how you live a meaningful life. And now insert your idol. Insert your functional God. That relationship, that marriage, that child, that job, money, hobby. And this is where it crumbles. Because I've told you many, many times before the scenario of an active shooter can come into our room right now, right? I pray that in that moment that I would shield you. We have people strategically located who have also dedicated, if that were to happen, they would do their best to shield you. And we could step in front of a bullet for you. And I could literally, in a real physical sense, save you, deliver you. That's what Messiah means but my death falls short. So I've always told you through the years. I may, that may extend your life a couple more seconds because there may be another, what do they call that? Another, um, say again? Clip. Another clip of ammunition. So extend your life a couple seconds. It may extend your life a couple minutes or maybe days, weeks, months, or even years. 
but my death cannot do for you what you ultimately need, which is a reconciliation of this idea of death. You are going to die, and you're going to one place or another. My death can't do that for you. So any person, thing that you're replacing with God right now is going to crumble in this day. It cannot keep you away from evil. It all falls short. Someone has to atone for you. Someone has to settle your account. And Solomon says that you are atoned for by two things, loving kindness and truth. This is how you are given new hearts. Someone has to atone for you, and they have two means to atone you with, loving kindness and truth. This is how your spine is straightened out, and this is best understood in our Jesus. Amen? And only Jesus. Jesus is the love of God. Jesus is the truth of God. As we are learning, it's also the ministry of the third person of the Godhead, God the Spirit, to teach you these two things, that Jesus is love and that Jesus is truth and that you cannot separate the experience of God from love and truth or from atonement and redemption. You see, without love, you're not going to have the motivation, the desire, the feeling of why you need atonement and redemption. Without truth, you're not going to have the reason. Why do I need atonement and redemption? I'm doing just fine. Look at this other person over there. Did you watch the news last night? I'm not as bad as him as an excuse for why you are the way that you are. So you need love and truth perfectly held together. And this is what some churches in the West and in America are getting wrong. They give the love of God without the truth of God in hopes that the love of God in neglecting the truth of God is going to win people over to God. But then there are also churches that all they do is focus on the truth of God without the love of God. Both of those extremes here in America does not honor the God they're hoping or thinking that they're honoring. So our prayer for heritage is this, is that heritage would be a place that speaks and acts out of both truth and love. For this is how people in our lives will see and be changed about their need and desire for atonement. That someone better needs to atone for what they have done and who they are. And Jesus secures our hearts to fear God by this atonement. Now let's take a look at our final proverb. Proverbs 14, 27. Solomon says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may avoid the snares of death. In essence, therefore, fear of the Lord takes the snares away that are attached to death. Or as Paul would say it, Jesus took the stinger out of death, the final hurt, the final pain. Jesus took that. And he put it on himself. Jesus put the snares off of death, off of you, and put it onto himself. Let's see this really quick. Fearing God is superior than your current way of living, if you don't fear God, because it's a fountain of life. By implication, Solomon is saying that any perspective that does not include fearing God, it's not a fountain, but a snare. 
It's not a fountain of life, but a pit of death. Do you see that? This is implied in the verse. It's, it's pointing out from this verse. Do you see it? When you see fearing God as the fountain for your life, what's going to happen is, the promise is, you will avoid the snares of death. Like kind of right now, Vernon's hunting in the trees and sitting there and just waiting for the right moment for his prey to stumble, right? So he can get him, right? Did I do that right, Tisa? Or did I sound like Forrest Gump? One time I made an impersonation and Ryan said I sound like Forrest Gump. I'm still offended by that. I'm just, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. The fool rejects God as fountain for life. And they will embrace any other human idea conceivable about life instead of God's idea for life. And in the end, the snares of death are going to get them. So we have to ask, how? How is fearing God a fountain for life? How does fearing God result in you? We are all going to experience death. We are. Christian, non-Christian. We are all going to experience death. The Bible answers why. It's outside the scope of this time. But there is a snare to death. There is a stinger attached to death. So how does fearing God as fountain of life desnare death or take the stinger out? That's our question. And this is where Jesus shines brightest. Fearing God is a fountain because Jesus is water that flows from this fountain. You have to remember the woman at the well, this non-Jewish woman who was struggling with sex and sexual relationships. She was on her fifth man. She's had sexual relations with five men. She didn't get after the second one. It, this, this does not work out. She's on her fifth one. And then she meets the best of all men. She finds him to be water. Not her fifth man, but the best man, Jesus. This is where we have to see Jesus shining brightest because he claims to be living water. This is what he said to the Samaritan woman. He said, I am living water that can go deep down in your soul and it will always spring up for you whenever you need it, all the way to eternal life. That's the claim of Jesus. Well water for the soul. Jesus did not avoid death. Jesus took on death. Those snares hit him so it wouldn't hit you. The stinger of death stung him so it wouldn't sting you. So that when you die, when I die, we're no longer ensnared and we'll no longer be finally stung. Fearing God is not a hindrance to what you really want. It's not the obstacle that you have to avoid to get what you really want. It is the pathway, the hinge by which you experience what you truly need, which is lasting satisfaction. All other buzzes will wear off, I promise you. Only Jesus can provide this. And Jesus provides and secures this for you and I by his death. You can only experience God as a fountain when you experience his son as your atonement and as your redemption. This means, and this begins by acknowledging something like this. I am hard-hearted. I am that fool. I have spiritual scoliosis, and I can never straighten myself out. 
But here's the tragic irony. No human being believes this. No human being does this. Naturally, deep down, we do not believe that we are hard-hearted, that we are fools, that we struggle with envy. We actually, deep down, believe that Christianity is foolish. And for those who make religion their aim, what they have done, in essence, is to make a god of their own invention. You see, it's not just the Israelites pestering Aaron to make a god out of gold. It's not just them. It's us. So if those who are involved in religion and don't truly fear God, they're just inventing and fashioning a God that they can live with. And that's what many people do in the West. And this brings us to our final application in Proverbs. And the call for you this morning is to set Jesus, set his presence and set his promises as that superior experience of wisdom. The ultimate goal of God in Proverbs is for you to see Jesus. God's Son is the wisdom of God. The call today is for you to set Jesus as that standard of wisdom for your life. So right now in our application, we're going to talk about barriers to this. And we're going to talk about how we can set Jesus as our wisdom. To set Jesus as our wisdom, we, you, must set his presence and his promises above all of your ideas, above all of your schemes, above all of your riches, above all of your relationships, and above all of your skills. I had that last one for me. Because I can trick myself in doing things well, and trying to do things well, as I'm okay with God. Performance is religion. And I struggle with that. So to help us, I want us to turn to the wisdom of Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I think we're going to look at three verses right now in Paul's wisdom so that you and I can see the barriers that we all face. We can see how God overcomes these barriers and then we can see how is it that we can set Jesus as our standard of wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The first thing you need to see is that naturally, humanity, including you, including me, we naturally see the cross as foolish. Do you see that? It's natural. From God's perspective, the cross is the power. The cross is the fountain. The cross is how we are atoned for. The cross is how you and I are redeemed. But humanity sees the cross as foolish because this is their struggle. What kind of God dies? The very mention of God dying shows that God isn't all-powerful, that God is not in control. So he's either a false God or a weak God. Either way, he isn't a God I should base my life on. He isn't a God that I should listen to. And that's why Jews and Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and atheists and agnostics stumble over the cross if they know anything about the cross. They cannot conceive of a God who is all-powerful who dies. They see the cross, therefore, as impotent. It's not death that the stinger has been taken out of. It's God's stinger. Jesus' stinger that's been taken out Paul claims 
that the cross is proof of the very power of God. So we see a clash. Is the cross foolishness? Is the claims of Jesus foolish? Or is it wisdom? Which one is it? God saves people through the very thing that humanity thinks is foolish. Isn't that ironic? Don't you think? Thank you. Thank you. All right. 1 Corinthians 1, 21. Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Paul's making another contrast, kind of like in the light of Solomon. He's contrasting the wise and the fool here, just like Proverbs does. But it's flipped now. Natural man, in their humanity, thinks the idea of God and the cross is foolish. Christians are the fools. The message of the cross is foolish. To the world, wisdom is not found in the cross. But the gospel claims that the cross is the power and the wisdom of God. Now, it's here we should stop and be reminded or come to learn that the Greek word that's used here for wisdom all through our New Testament is where we get our English word philosophy. Philos Sophia, the love of wisdom. Here's what Paul is saying. Secular philosophy, meaning any philosophy without Jesus at its center, will never lead a person to truly know God. There's not enough breadcrumbs to follow to get to God unless those breadcrumbs were made by Jesus. So how do you come to know true wisdom? And here's what Paul would say. You're not going to find it by taking a philosophy class at university. You're not going to find it there. And you are not going to find it on the New York Times bestseller list for 2024. It's not going to happen. And you are not going to necessarily find it on social media. I think Paul would say something like that to us today. To know true wisdom, you must know who true wisdom is. And true wisdom is Jesus and Jesus crucified. The gospel is this. True wisdom comes by the one thing that you think naturally is foolish. The idea that humanity is broken and beautiful that we have hard hearts, we have spiritual scoliosis, that we can't fix ourselves, it is reprehensible to people. It's reprehensible to the world. The idea that the only thing that can fix your brokenness, that can soften your hard heart, that can straighten out your spiritual scoliosis is the cross of Jesus, it is repulsive to people. It's repulsive to the world. The philosophy of the world sees things upside down. What they consider to be foolish is actually wise in God's economy. So let's get to our final verse so we can see how this has changed. If this is natural and there's nothing that we can do about it, how does a single person even change? How is a Christian even made? Verse 30 begins to answer that. Paul says, but by his doing. That's the answer. But he says more. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So here's Paul's conclusion. Naturally, on your own, you will always reject some part of the claims of Jesus. 
the wisdom of God in his word, naturally. And it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 30 years. You will come across a topic that you're going to be tempted to put your natural understanding above God's. That's why Proverbs 3 is about leaning on God's understanding above yours. We did that earlier in the spring. No one, myself included, wants to hear that they're broken, that their hearts are hard, that they have a terminal spiritual condition called scoliosis. No one does. Therefore, the gospel is this. It has to be by his doing. Do you see that? This is natural. So it has to be God's doing to change us, to change our hearts, to change our eyes, and how we see Jesus, how we feel about Jesus. And the Bible calls this election, predestination, and regeneration. All three terms that are found in the Bible. It has to be God who moves first to change us. It has to be God's doing for you to see his son as real wisdom. This is how your barriers today can be overcome. We have a wide variety of barriers this morning representing the people here as to what's obstructing your view of Jesus. You have a wide variety of barriers, but they're all removed the same way. It has to be God's doing. And as we spoke about on Wednesday night, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words, the wisdom of Christ. Step one is doing what you're doing. Putting yourself in a position time and time again for God to do it again. To change you. To change how you think. To change how you feel about whatever subject. That's the barrier right now for you to continue with Jesus. That's how barriers are overcome. You cannot jump over the hurdle. It's not as if you just let God jump over the salvation hurdle and then you jump over the rest. It's God time and time again jumping over hurdles hurdles. Because you know all of humanity is probably like me trying to jump over a hurdle. Can you imagine what that would look like? Be running, one, and then two, trying to jump over a hurdle? It has to be by his doing that your heart for Jesus is changed. And your perspective on what he is saying about that situation, that barrier, is the truth. That you're wrong. Jesus' presence and promises are the superior experience of wisdom. So the question that we begin to close with is this. How do you set Jesus' wisdom as superior? Setting Jesus' wisdom means that you begin by asking Jesus something like this. Jesus, what is your wisdom for sex? What is your wisdom for money? What is your wisdom for relationships and family and marriage and hobbies and friendships and suffering? and pain, and work, whatever the the barrier is right now. To set means that daily, yes, in some capacity, daily, that you consider what the real presence and promises of God means in that barrier, for that barrier, for that relationship, for that situation, for that pain, for that suffering. It's a daily grind. Setting Jesus' wisdom means feeling, which we looked at a couple weeks ago on Wednesday, the promises of the Great Commission. Remember, there's a bookend of promises to this commission God has called you to as the church. Number one, that he has all authority in heaven on earth. And lo, 
that he is with you always, even to the final day of the eschaton. Jesus secured your experience of godly wisdom by taking on your death. Now you have the privilege to spend the rest of your days setting the wisdom of the one who died for you above all earthly wisdom. So moving forward, I believe, to try to condense and simplify, we need to add three things to our lives. Number one, the idea that Jesus is the most powerful and he's the most present with you. Not mom and dad, not boyfriend, girlfriend, not husband or wife, or not child. Jesus is the most powerful and the most present person in your life. And then two, the idea that Jesus has spoken true wisdom for you to know. And then three, and this implies vulnerability. And this implies that God is doing something in you. The idea that you believe that you need to discover what Jesus' wisdom is so that you can apply it to your life. No one except those that God is working in ever talks like that. That's foolishness to the world. You go tell somebody who's not a Christian, yeah, I woke up this morning and I'm really struggling about how I should do my relationship with my significant other. And I was looking through the scriptures about stuff. They're like, what? How archaic. How repulsive. How old school. Yuck. Just do what feels good, man. Right? The very proof that you begin this journey this way implies that God is doing something in you. And that's our hope. If you have that desire, God has started something in you, and he's going to bring it forward to completion. Because it's only by God's doing that anyone talks this way, and anyone has a desire for this. So, next week, we start a new series. And we're going to see how this kind of change, how this kind of growth takes place in us. And we are going to see that it is through the Spirit of Jesus, God the Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, that any of this change takes place. And we'll begin to see, I pray, how Sundays and Wednesdays will work together to see how this plays out.